we encourage you to turn to the book of Daniel chapter 7 this morning and we're going to be uh, doing the first few verses of uh, Daniel chapter 7. We've gotten into a little bit of a different section in Daniel if you uh, are reading ahead at all. You are probably, you know, excited, licking your chops for what's coming in the book of Daniel, I'm sure. Um, there's usually two different responses to uh, what we're going to study in uh, as we get to the second part of Daniel. But if you're visiting with us, we've been walking through the book of Daniel. We've gotten to the end of chapter 6, and uh, the first six chapters we've seen a lot of crazy things, I think. Uh, we've, seen, uh, we've seen statues and visions. We've seen Daniel interpret visions when he's not given any uh, idea of what that is, because God obviously uh, gave him that interpretation and that vision for Nebuchadnezzar. We have seen a hand writing on the wall. We have seen men thrown into a fiery furnace and not even a hair on their head was singed. And just last week, we saw a man thrown into a lion's den and he was not harmed at all overnight. So miraculous work of God after miraculous work of God, we have seen in the first six chapters of Daniel. And it's been pretty incredible to walk through those together. But now we're heading into something a bit more difficult, Um, prophetic, apocalyptic, um, tones kind of going to be a bit of a ride, I think, for us, um, but it's going to be a good one. Uh, and so the rest of the book of Daniel from 7 through 12 is prophecy. It's apocalyptic literature. Um, apocalypse is the destruction of the world. And so end times, prophecy, things like that is what we're getting into. And typically there's two responses. Either you are excited about this, and this is going to be a lot of fun, or you're like, why are we wasting our time, kind of like, but you know it's God's word, so we're not wasting our time, but you're like, eh, if the commentators can't agree, what's the point in us even having a t- discussion about it, right? And so um, you may find yourselves in one of those camps as we come through Daniel through these last five chapters. I hope that you find encouragement in it. If you could stick through Leviticus with us, you can do the last five books of the book of Daniel, because that was a fun ride in the book of Leviticus. So some of you are excited because of prophecy, because discussion on end times. And certainly when we look around the world today uh, and we see the different things that happen over in Israel or the different rulers that become uh, kings, uh, and we kind of see those things. And and even when it comes to prophecy, oftentimes we're attributing the fulfillment of those prophecies to things that are happening right now. And so everybody's ears kind of get perked and, and you get excited maybe, or you at least are wondering what this is all about, what prophecy, these end times prophecies are about. And that may be you, but there's others that find it confusing and difficult and hard. But it's something that we shouldn't just quit on, right? You wouldn't quit on something just because it was difficult. If you told me what it was going to be like raising four boys, which I'm only five years into, so I'm not asking for sympathy (laughs) at all. I know that's coming. But if you were to tell me what the first five years would be like, and you tell me how hard it would be at certain times and how difficult it would be and how many times you'd have to repeat yourself and how many times you'd be trying to get them off of that hamster wheel because they're just going crazy. And you would tell me that in five years you would feel like you've learned nothing and you've barely gotten anywhere and the, the, the easy times are not coming. I would not, I don't think, look at, at least certainly looking back, I probably would not have said, I don't want to have any kids. I might have said, like, let's try not to have four boys, but I wouldn't have said, (laughs) let's not have kids, right? Just because something's difficult does not mean we should 
not do it. Or something, if it's difficult in the Bible, it doesn't mean we should just ignore it. And I think these chapters are difficult passages to deal with, and we should not ignore them. We should not ignore any of God's Word. All of it is profitable for us, even prophetic visions and apocalyptic literature where we can't all agree necessarily, or at least commentators, on what these things mean. So we shouldn't skip over them. We preach the Scriptures, and we trust that God's going to use them in our lives to change us, and to encourage us, and to give us confidence. So if that's you, if you're that person that's tempted to skip over those passages, I hope you're able to stick with us through the rest of Daniel, as we learn together what God is saying to His people then, but also by extension what He's saying to us now through the book of Daniel. So confidence is this feeling or this belief that you can rely on someone or something, this firm trust. What are you confident in? Who in your life are you confident in? Who can you rely on? Who is somebody who is always there for you when you need them? Confidence. In Jesus, or sorry, in John chapter 14, Jesus is telling his disciples. Um, about the Holy Spirit that's coming, that He's going to send. And and then He also says, and I'm leaving you, and I'm going to the Father, but I'm coming back. And in John 14.29, He says this, Now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Why did Jesus tell them what was going to happen with fuzzy details? He says in John 14, here's why I told you. So that when it happens, you may believe. So that your, your faith may be stronger. So that your trust in me may be stronger. So your confidence in me would be stronger. I think that's partly what we need to see in Daniel chapter 7 this morning. So in this chapter, we have an outline sweep of all of human history, the whole of human history, from the time certainly of Daniel and what's going on there to the end. And God was telling His people what was going to happen in the future in these visions that we're going to read about in a moment. And He reveals it to them so that when it comes to pass, they may be strengthened. That they, may, they may have resolved to endure the trials that they face. And so if you're in Daniel chapter 7, let's read Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 through 8 uh, together this morning. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, 
And behold, in this horn were eyes, like eyes, the eyes of a man, and a mouth, speaking great things. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning, we're not going to deal as much with the interpretation of these four beasts, although I'll give you some ideas, or at least the fourth beast. Um, in three weeks' time, Daniel comes back to that. It's like he sees this vision, and he sees the fourth beast, and you can even tell as you read the text, and he, there's something about the fourth beast that's different, and he asks about the fourth beast, and there's an interpretation given later, which we're going to come to. So I'm going to try not to steal any of uh, Jeff's thunder as he gets to that in a few weeks. But there's a bit of a pause even in Daniel chapter 7 before that. And so we're dealing with first the four beasts this morning. So the first half of Daniel deals with the history certainly of Israel and of the world, and the second half deals with prophecy. Prophecy always has something to do with God's plan for God's people. And so what is prophecy? I have a definition for you. Prophecy is a declaration of future events such as no human wisdom or forecast is sufficient to make. It depends on a knowledge of the innumerable contingencies of human affairs which belongs exclusively to the omniscience of God, so that from its very nature, prophecy must be divine revelation. Prophecy is divine revelation. It's a message from God to His people about what God is going to do for His people. And as we walk through prophecies in Daniel 7-12, through there's a few things that I want you to keep in mind as we come now to this section of the book. Prophecy does not give important details about the future of God that God has for us, rather, so that we would know in advance for when they occur. Rather, I said that wrong. It does include those things so that when it does happen, we know. So there's important details that God lays out in prophecy so that when we come to see it and see it fulfilled, we might know when it occurs. But secondly, we should never speculate as to how those future ones are going to be fulfilled. So it's as if you look at prophecy and you say to yourself, where am I in this prophecy? Where do I fit on history? Because clearly in Daniel, in Daniel 7, there's four beasts, and we have to ask that question, where am I in this? Am I before the beasts? Am I after the beasts? Has some of this been fulfilled? How much of it has been fulfilled? We ask these questions, but it would be foolish of us to speculate on something and lead somebody off track by saying, this is it, firmly, when the text does not say that it is. Because what we do in doing that is we lead people to look to the wrong things sometimes. And we keep them off track so that when it actually comes to it being fulfilled, this prophecy, we're, they're looking in a different direction. Does that sound like anybody you've read about in Scripture? The Pharisees were not seeing Christ properly when He came, and yet there was numerous prophecies about Him. And they were looking for a different fulfillment. Why is that? It was the wrong, they were looking in the wrong spot. They were looking for, rather, somebody different than what the Bible had said. They had left off the suffering servant uh, and the prophecies about him, and they were looking for a ruler that was going to free them from Rome. So we've got to be careful when it comes to prophecy then. But then apocalyptic literature, this end times, destruction of the world stuff, what do we do with that? Because that's certainly in Daniel 7. Apocalyptic literature is a specific form of prophecy, largely involving symbols, which, you, which we read about, and imagery predicting disaster and destruction, hence the four beasts. What are those four beasts doing? They're not being lovely little beasts, right? They're beasts for a reason. So apocalyptic literature 
frequently contains descriptions and strange ones and bizarre imagery, which we see. And if you were to look up the four beasts on YouTube, you would see everyone's imagination of what those things look like. And you can certainly imagine as you read it, bizarre. This kind of literature is strange because the observer is trying to explain things that he just does not understand. For us, we were not there. We did not see what Daniel saw. And so it's, it's strange for us to try to explain that. Perhaps the vision and the dream really was as weird as, it, as Daniel had described it. Have you ever had weird dreams before? Stuff that was pretty weird that you would have a hard time describing to somebody or you know vague details about? The other reason that apocalyptic literature is strange is because the end of the world is going to involve some abnormal events. Satan is going to be dealt with. Justice is going to be served to Satan. There's going to be a final reckoning for Satan. And so you would imagine that there's going to be abnormal events surrounding God finally bringing to justice the work of Satan in the world and also redeeming us. That's not just going to be your average day. right? That's going to be different. In apocalyptic literature, there is a heavy use of symbolism. If you turn into Romans, or sorry, Revelation 12, it describes a woman who is clothed with the sun. What does that mean? Heavy use of symbolism that we have to try to navigate through. So, this kind of writing, this apocalyptic literature, does not seek then to make specific detailed prophecies about the future as much as it is to provoke in us feelings and emotions. And that's why Dan, that's part of the point of this vision of these four beasts. It's not so that we figure out who they all are. It's, it's the emotion and the feelings that we're supposed to feel in light of this. And what is the truth behind some of this, this imagery and this symbolism? And what does it mean for us? Images communicate a powerful truth, but sometimes not with a lot of precision. Riley could get the fact that it was like an olive-shaped thing in the box, but that's about as close as he could get, right? But it was actually a grape. It was different. So there's not exactly precision there, but they help. Images help us. It's kind of like when we put uh, music to lyrics, or maybe it's the opposite for you. Maybe you uh, just enjoy lyrics, but sometimes I find for myself, when you add music to lyrics, they tend to have a bit more power, To them. They strike a chord in us differently. It's similar to that, I think, here. When you add um, music to words, they minister to us differently. And so, this vision is supposed to invoke feelings, evoke feelings in us. Another possible reason for the strange language in this kind of literature is the difficulty inherent in trying to explain the future. You can't explain the future with absolute clarity, especially for us. We understand this because we don't know what the future is going to be, and so it's difficult. So a natural question for you to be asking as we read this is, why did God show us the future in signs and symbols rather than with absolute clarity? Great question. I'm asking the same thing. I haven't got an answer yet, but I have some ideas for you. Because it matters how you live right now. And you know that it's better that we don't know everything. I think you know that deep down, even though we struggle at times and we want to know. It'll become clear when it needs to become clear. And so these prophecies are meant to, not to turn us into investigators, but they're to inspire us in faith and hope and worship to help us live in the present, to live with confidence, to instill that in us. So that it doesn't matter what's going on around us, we have confidence. 
And so let's get into the text this morning then. We're going to survey the first eight uh, verses as we read them, and then I'm going to provide you, as you see in the outline, two points for us to take with us. The first thing is confidence in what God has spoken in the, in the first, in the eight verses, I guess, that we have there. And so I'm going to walk through these verses. Verse 1, as you look at the timing of the vision, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, if you've been with us and following with us, Daniel chapter 6 in the lion's den, when we come to 7, 7 through 12, basically, uh, we're going to put ourselves back into the first six chapters of Daniel. And so you'll see as we walk through um, and the different visions that come, we'll have a timestamp for those. And so for us, just to get a mental note, we're in the rule of Belshazzar in the first year of his reign, which uh, would be prior to the events of Daniel 6, obviously, that we just read about in Daniel in the lion's den, because Persia's already ruling at that point. And Daniel's likely around the age of 60 at this point, 50 years, or 15 rather, before the lion's den. And they've been in captivity for a number of years, and as Daniel has his vision, you can imagine he's saying, what does this mean for us right now in captivity? He knows how long the captivity is supposed to last, but as he has this vision, he's asking probably, what does this mean for us? Prior to this point, Daniel was the one interpreting visions or dreams. But now we have in the text Daniel actually having a vision and God speaking through Daniel. A vision through his own prophet. And we're not told who he shares this vision with, but we presume that it would be the nation of Israel. And what does it say in the text in verse 1? He shared the chief words, the essential features. And he wrote down and told the sum of the matter. That's not like he laid out every single detail that he could recall. He laid out what he thought seemed to be the meat of the visions. And so we have for us exactly what God wants us to have. But we do not have every detail, but we do have everyone to get the point across. And so by the time you get to the end of this dream, I don't know about you as we read that, but you're left, you're, you're left wanting more. You ever felt that when you've read God's Word? Like, what happened here? What happened here? What are these, you know, what did, how do they respond? What are the questions that they ask? What does this actually mean? You want more details about the beasts, about the identity of the beasts. Question for you. Has God told us everything that there is to know? No, He hasn't. Has He told us everything that there is that we need to know? Yes. So He hasn't told us everything that there is to know. But He has told us everything that we need to know. Have you ever wrestled with that? When you get a diagnosis, when you get a family issue, when you have something come up in your life, you ever wondered, why? What's the point of this? Have you ever wanted to know more? Or wondered why God was not revealing all the details to you at that particular time? If you have, you're in good company. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham exactly where to go. He says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And that was the land of Canaan. And Abraham went. God told him specifically where to go. He doesn't always do that though. If you've been reading in our Bible's uh, reading plan, you, we would have just read the, the story of Joseph recently. And uh, the story of Joseph, you know how he gets sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he's in Egypt, and his father Jacob is led to believe the entire time that his son is in Egypt, that his son is dead. Why didn't God tell him? His brothers knew. Jacob didn't know. And it says in Genesis 45, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe. But then he says afterward, let me go 
and let me see Joseph. He does believe. Before I die, let me go see my son. Why didn't God tell Jacob? Questions we have. We want to know. There is such thing as too much knowledge as it relates to our ability to handle it, to understand it properly. There are things that we don't explain to our children when they're younger, and we wait until they're older to explain it to them. Because we're trying to protect them, because we understand that this is not something that they need to understand at the age that they are at, right? And we use discernment in that, hopefully. But it's because we love them. It's not because we want to lord our knowledge over them and be smarter than them. We recognize that this is a burden or at least knowledge that is too much for you right now. And then we think that God should tell us everything because we're old enough and mature enough, right? And there's irony in that. God is merciful for not telling us everything. He tells us enough to sustain us if we trust Him, but often that does not feel like enough. We really think that we need more. But God does not tell us everything about our future. He lays out a vision for who He will be and what He wants us to be, people walking in a manner worthy of Christ, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, growing in our holiness and becoming like Christ. And He tells us that. That's what I want for your life. But He doesn't give us every detail along that journey. He doesn't tell us everything we're going to accomplish. He doesn't tell us how we're going to get there. He doesn't tell us how difficult it's going to be. But He has given us the Scriptures and His Holy Spirit to be with us and to carry us through that. So God has told us everything we need in Daniel 7 right now to live an informed life based on this chapter. You do not need to know the exact interpretation of Daniel 7 in order to apply this text to your life. And that carries out right through the rest of Daniel. And that's something we have to understand. Verse 2, apocalyptic literature is not always clear. He said he saw a vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. We have symbolism and images there. The four winds representing the earth and the great sea representing humanity. And the great sea there would, is a picture of chaos and the chaos that surrounds humanity and that is the world that we live in right now. And I believe that you could agree with us that there are times where this world feels chaotic and we can see that. And then in verse 3, we have the four beasts. And if I read in Daniel 7, we re skip ahead just to steal one verse out of our passages coming. It says in Daniel 7, 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So we're given, if I look ahead, we're given an idea as to who these beasts are. They're kings that are going to be ruling on the earth. And it says in the text, these, these beasts were different from each other, each of them. Context, biblical context, shows us that we should probably consider Daniel chapter 2 as we read Daniel chapter 7 because the parallels are just right there. And in Daniel chapter 2, we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interprets. You remember the statue or, uh, that um, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of and it had the four materials that it was made out of the top was this gold statue and, and Nebuchadnezzar was told, this is you, this is who you are. And the bottom one is the iron one. We walked through Daniel chapter 2. You can go and check out our sermon online for some of that uh, to, to bring that into context with Daniel 7 here. There are similarities between the two dreams, but there's also differences. There's similarities in that there seems to be four kingdoms, four things going on, four things that are being pointed to, but different in what those things, um, not in what they represent, but in maybe, uh, well, let's get into it. What... 
the purpose of them is and the circumstances surrounding them. In Daniel 2, we have a dream from man's perspective. And this dream, Nebuchadnezzar, he's, it's splendor, it's grandeur, it's beauty as he sees the different kingdoms. It's beauty because Nebuchadnezzar knows he's at the top of this tower. But it's very different perspective, right? It's a tower and the four different kings that are represented there. And Nebuchadnezzar's at the top and he thinks this is great. But in Daniel 7, we have a vision from God to Daniel and it shows us, I believe, those same earthly kingdoms, but from God's perspective. So we have, we have Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, and then we have God's. Man's perspective and God's. What is God's perspective oftentimes? The same as man's? Does God see things the same way you and I see them? That would be great, wouldn't it? He doesn't. Do you ever have two completely different opinions on how something went? Like you ever go out on a date with your spouse or go somewhere with your spouse and you get to the end of it, maybe it was like a monster truck rally and you're like, yeah, that was great. And she's like, yeah, that was great. <clears throat> and she, totally different perspective maybe, I don't know, whatever it is for you guys. If it's something new that you try and you're like, yeah, that was awesome. And your wife and your spouse is like, no, that was not that awesome, right? You probably have those things. Nebuchadnezzar thinks this is really great. These kingdoms are really great. And God sees it. And what does God see? Chaos, depravity, horror. The way God sees it is beasts. The way Nebuchadnezzar sees it is this great big statue made of these great metals that are going to last as long as uh, at least past his kingdom. So long as we're under earthly nations, this is how it's going to be. Until the kingdom of God comes in its fulfillment and its complete fulfillment, we're going to experience chaos under earthly kingdoms. And that's God's perspective of it. And so we shouldn't be surprised by it. And so that's is true of our lives. God sees a different perspective than what is actually going on. We, we just do not have the wisdom of God at times to understand everything. And I know that we want that, but we can't have that. So God sees the truth of the situation and he sees that we're completely blind to it, but God knows it. And so we ought to turn to God in those times, certainly, and ask him for help to see what he wants us to see. And so verse 4, the first beast is described for us as a lion with wings. And he says the wings were plucked off. Babylon had many lions that were used to, as images for the kingdom of Babylon. And so typically this beast has been associated with Babylon for those reasons and others. There were statues of lions with wings at the gate of the royal palace. And wings maybe represented how swiftly Nebuchadnezzar was able to submit the nations under him. But it's interesting in that first beast, the wings were plucked off of him. Daniel is reading this after the vision of Daniel chapter 2. But even after Nebuchadnezzar has gone through and had his time in the wilderness... And he has this vision, what do you think his mind is going to when you read that verse? As we, read, as we read it, your mind, I think, goes to the whole story of Nebuchadnezzar and how he was in the wilderness for a number of years and left to act like a beast. But what does God do with that? He restores him. And we see that in verse 4, the restoring, or at least an image of that, as he's given the mind of a man. And so I suspect that that is similar to what is going on there and that that's fresh in their minds as they're reading and hearing this prophecy from Daniel. But then the second beast, different from the first one, the beast was like a bear. You notice how the text says like a bear and like uh, this. It's like Riley said, this feels like an olive. You know, I don't know for sure. I, I don't have all of my senses there, but this seems to be what it was like. He's describing what he seems to be seeing 
in conjunction with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, this may represent the Medes and the Persians. The three ribs being the three nations that the Medes conquered, Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon, which we know from antiquity. And it says in the text it was raised up on one side. This could be an image for the reality that the Persians were stronger and greater than the Medes. And this is one of the views that has typically been understood as we look at this beast. But this was beast was given an assignment. We don't, we're not told who from, but to arise and devour much flesh. And this is a common theme in this, vi- in this vision, and we're going to go back to this just briefly. But these beasts are not in themselves, they do not control everything. They are told, they are given dominion, as it says, they are, um, the things are done to them. They're in the passive, they're acted upon because God is the one who's in control of all these things as we're going to come to see. And then we have in verse 6, the third beast. This beast was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. You see that again. Commentators believe that this was Alexander the Great, which would fit with Daniel chapter 2 of the third part of the vision that, or the dream rather, that Nebuchadnezzar had. Leopards and wings representing, again, swiftness. And Alexander the Great fit that bill, certainly. There are other rulers and kings that have come in world history that would maybe fit this as well with swiftness. But Alexander the Great, he overthrew the ruler of Persia and conquered all the kingdoms of the known world in 12 years. He did it all there. And according to Plutarch, when Alexander conquered Persia, it took 10,000 pairs of mules and 5,000 camels to carry away all the booty that he conquered. He did this all before he was halfway through his 30s. I'm 30, I got like four years left to beat that, and I'm nowhere near what Alexander the Great did in conquering the known world. Alexander's kingdom, though, was divided. It was divided in four ways to four generals when he died, and hence maybe the four leopards' heads. There are four generals that were given over uh, to rule his kingdom. But then we come to the fourth beast in in verse 7 and 8. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. You notice how different this beast is from the others. And if you, if you do any searching on this, you'll see this in all the images that are described as well. It's a, it's a much more graphic and different looking beast. And you'll, so you'll see that it's different. It doesn't resemble anything that Daniel has seen before, or at least that he's comfortable attributing it to. And it says in the text that iron teeth and typically... We have used that to understand the iron of the, going back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, the, the metal on the bottom of the statue, the feet are made of iron, and so some have said that this is the Romans. I'm going to let Jeff deal with that, though, in three weeks' time, so we will leave that interpretation of the fourth beast for him to decide. But it's interesting to note some of these things. The Romans were the next great ruler after Alexander the Great, but there's some differences. There's ten horns, and ten horns represents power. And the power that this beast had. But then it says in the text there was a little horn that came up. And Daniel is captivated by this little horn. And he's going to ask about it later. So we're not going to say a lot. But you notice what it says about that little horn. That three of the ten horns were plucked out. And up arose this horn with eyes like a man. This had to be a graphic dream. I've never... I've, I've seen horns cut off of a cow before and I've seen when you kind of miss and it gets pretty bloody and gory but I can't imagine what that would be like just ripping horns right out of an animal but it seems to be what 
Daniel saw. And so there's some graphic imagery that's going on here. These horns were ripped out and up comes another horn. And this certainly would have terrified Daniel. There's no doubt that this is meant to evoke emotion in you, to see how incredibly powerful this fourth beast was in comparison to all the other ones that came from it. There's, there's, there's just something different about this beast. And the beast goes on to speak things in reference to blasphemous speech. In Daniel 7.25 it says, He shall speak words referring to the horn against the Most High God. So this horn is against God in whatever way we're going to come to understand a little bit later. This beast was more terrifying, stronger than every beast that Daniel had saw. And we're going to see a little later what the possibility of who that beast might represent. So what kind of questions come to mind then at the conclusion of this dream, of this vision? Who are the beasts? We don't know exactly who they are. And I think, as I said earlier, we can properly understand the vision without resolving who these beasts are. Because that's not necessarily the only point of this prophecy. God wanted His people to understand something about coming kingdoms. About the coming kingdoms that were to come. The earthly kingdoms that were going to come. But He wanted them to know exactly who it was that was in control all the way through. In control of all of humanity. And so that brings us to our, our final two points. Confidence in God's control. There are a few phrases sprinkled through that we read in Daniel 7. It was lifted up. The mind of a man was given to it. Dominion to rule was given to it. God is in control. That's what you have to see when you read Daniel 7, verse 1 through 8. God is in control. If there are earthly kings and kingdoms, God is in control of them. Daniel chapter 2 says this. He changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. The entire book of Daniel is a reminder to us that God is in control of everything that happens in the lives of His people. Of every single ruler throughout all of human history. All the nations, past, present, and future, God is in control of. And they're there for a reason. And in Job 42, Job says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. We have to come to grips with the fact that that is the reality of the world we live in. God is in control of it and there are things that I do not understand about why God is doing certain things. So if this prophecy scares you, Daniel, know this. God is in control. If the chaos that surrounds you right now in the world that we live in scares you, God is in control. If whatever you're going through right now scares you, God is in control. These beasts that ruled are not exceptional. They're not the only beasts that we're going to see in the kingdoms of human history. And we know that because we have so many examples of that in the past even just a few hundred years of people that, were, that did grotesque things to other people. Rulers and kingdoms that did atrocious things to other people. They represent these beasts. Every human manifestation of evil is a reflection of the work of Satan in the world today. And we can't be naive about history and thinking that certain governments or certain ideologies are going to save the planet. 
Only God is going to do that in His time. And if this is true, and this is what this beastly vision is supposed to teach you, then we need to have something to hold on to. The complete and total control of a loving God. Satan's not in control. God's going to have His way. And since God is in control, we can be confident then in His plan, even though He doesn't reveal it all to us. But the second thing that we can be confident in is God's, or sorry, that is the third thing rather, we were firstly confident in His, in his uh, control, and then we're confident in His plan. You know how hard it is at times not to know all the details about what God is doing. We can be confident, though, that God is using all of those things, all of those difficult things, especially the difficult things, for our good in the lives of those who love Him. That's a promise in Romans 8. That those difficult things that you're walking through as a follower of Jesus, God is going to use those for your good. And you may not see exactly how that is true, but that is a promise. And so we don't have to fear. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Being self-controlled and sober-minded is being free from intoxicating influences. That doesn't just mean don't be drunk. He's saying sober-minded. Being sober-minded means that you're to see things clearly. Understand what's going on. God is in control. Don't get in a frenzy and get in a panic when you see what's going on around you. When you see people saying, oh, this is a potential fulfillment of this prophecy and this prophecy and this is going on. Don't panic. Know that God is in control. Pay attention to what God is doing so you can have proper understanding when He works. And then Acts 17 says, And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God did that, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps find their way toward Him and find Him. God planned from the beginning of creation for there to be a way for sinful human beings to live in a right relationship with God. That was part of God's plan. He had planned that from the beginning of creation. God planned to bring a Messiah into the world. We read that, we read that in prophecy all over the Old Testament. God planned where the Messiah was going to be born. He planned where He would live. He planned how He was going to live. God planned that Jesus was going to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And that in doing that, He was going to take on the wrath that God had for sinful humans. He was going to take that wrath on Himself. And by doing that, allow us to have the righteousness of Christ if you place your faith in Him. God planned all of that before the foundation of the world. And He brought it to fruition. We get to see what God did and how He, and how he brought all that about. And now God plans, and is planning to, save for all of eternity those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. If God did it with Jesus, He's going to do what He says He is going to do by saving us for eternity. There's nothing that can be done to stop God's plans. And Philippians 1 says this, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that work of salvation, he's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that's going to stop God's plan to save you and to save me and to save those who place their faith in him. So God's plan for your life and mine is our holiness and our redemption. That we would one day be like Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought, I shouldn't be doing this, this way of living, this sinful pattern you're in, you ever thought, this, I shouldn't be doing this, Jesus could be coming at any time. You've ever felt that? You've had that before. Then prophecy is doing what it's supposed to do. 
is helping you to live right now in light of what God has said He's going to do by coming back. Christ said that He's coming back again. That's God's message to us. The point of prophecy is not to scare us. It's to purify us. It's to push us towards holiness. So take your personal holiness seriously. Live like Jesus could come back today, but plan, maybe, as if God is going to give you an entire life to serve Him and minister for Him effectively and love people and show and share the Gospel. But, but live like today could be your last. Take care of your soul. Cast off your sin. Turn from it. Spend time in God's Word. Spend time in prayer. Grow in your love for your enemies, for brothers and sisters in Christ. Pursue the fruits of the Spirit. Be a peacemaker. And then, what do we do? Sit back and watch how history unfolds according to God's plan. Live confidently in God's plan and His purposes for your life and for human history. Let's close with this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. God has a great plan for His people. And we can live confidently in light of that right now. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word this morning to us. For this vision in Daniel chapter 7 of these beasts. God, it can be so easy for us to try to figure out the identity of everything that You are saying to us. And God, I think we wrestle with the idea of not knowing everything. God, we want to know what You are doing. And it's hard to trust You at times with the things in our lives that we can't see clearly as to the ways that You are working. And God, I ask that You would help us to trust You. Help us to trust You for the reasons that we have learned about this morning, that You are in control of all things and that Your plan is going to happen according to Your will. Regardless, God, and we know that Your will is good for us, even when we don't think it's good for us. And so, God, help us to rest in that. Be confident in that as we live for You. God, may You encourage us and embolden us. Help us to take our holiness seriously. Help us to pursue You. Help us to love to love you and to love others around us, God. And I pray that as we study these prophecies that they would have their way of purifying us in our hearts and help us to navigate through the weeds of it all to understand the principle that you are trying to get at for your people. And God, we ask that, we'd be glorified, that you would be glorified rather through our lives as we live out the confidence that we have in you. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.